Chris O'Connor here. Join the Curmudgeon Rock Report's invite-only curmudgeonly community at facebook.com slash curmudgeonrock. Also look out for a Spotify playlist that pays honor to this episode. This is the Curmudgeon Rock Report, and this is your podcast made by rock geek iconoclastic outsiders for rock geek iconoclastic outsiders. For those of you who lament that rock music has gone the way of jazz and slipped into niche genre status, we are here to keep that flame alive by providing insight, analysis, recommendations, and honest takes, not hot takes. And hey, there's a good chance you'll learn some rock history you never knew before. You don't need me to tell you how much of a legend and an icon John Lennon is. But I'll briefly tell you anyway. (laughs) As one half of the creative engine that drove the Beatles, he's one of the most important and influential musicians and artists of the 20th century. One of only a handful of musical artists whose impact transcends generational gaps, society, culture, politics, and even music itself. Yet in recent years, younger generation fans and critics have taken a kinder shine to the Paul McCartney half of the Beatles' magic formula. And there's nothing wrong with that. Paul was awesome. The problem therein lies with how, at least the way yours truly curmudgeons see it, how Lennon's role and importance in the band has been noticeably de-emphasized and marginalized by these younger critics and fans, most egregiously by writer Victoria Seagal in the November 2022 issue of Mojo Magazine in an article that delved into the making of the classic album Revolver. This particular curmudgeon took such offense to this unfair and frankly inaccurate sidelining of the man's role and importance that he actually wrote an email to Mojo as a form of complaint. Yes, that email got published in Mojo's mailbag section, and yes, I will recite what I wrote later in this episode. As for this seemingly anti-Lenin mood among fans and critics in the past 10 years or so, could it be a, a woke thing as a reaction to how he practically abandoned his first wife and son back in 1968? Could it be a backlash against his political activism and promotion of world peace? Who knows? Whatever the case, this podcast will attempt to rectify the situation and set the record straight as to the man's greatness, what he really was and meant within the context of the Beatles, both musically and ideologically, exactly why he, not Paul McCartney, was the real leader and guidepost for the band, at least until the last year of their existence, and why he had by far the best solo career of any of the band members. So, appropriately, since this year marks the 60th anniversary of the release of the Beatles' first album, let's take a deep dive into the work, impact, influence, importance, and overall greatness of the man at least I consider to be THE Beatle. Here is an appreciation of John Lennon. Now, 
Paul treated his bandmates like sidemen and then announced the breakup of the Beatles via promotional press for his solo debut album in April of 1970. John said the Beatles were a bigger deal than Jesus Christ, and he actually released a song he co-wrote with his wife called Woman is Nigger of the World. Well, Arturo, uh, the world in 2023 is conducive to one of those guys anyway, right? Yeah, I mean, if you want to be fair, I mean, as much of a Beatles fanatic as I am, if you want to like really get down, oh man, oh, oh, this guy was a dick. No, that guy was a dick. No, they were all dicks to each other. <laughs> they really Yeah, were. pretty much. I mean, yeah, all, and that's- all, all three of them were narcissists. All yeah. three of them. Ringo is the only one who's innocent of that. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so yeah, there were... The, Nobody really said, yeah, Paul was, wasn't Paul when the Beatles first hit? Wasn't he supposed to be like the nice Beatle? Yeah. Or, I mean, or the handsome Beatle or something? Or, well, yeah, I don't he, know. he was the cute one. Lennon was the smart and witty one. George, the quiet one. And Ringo was just Ringo. Yeah. Ringo was always just Ringo, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'll, I'll say this. He was the best actor of the four. Oh, yeah. At some point, we have to do an In Defense of Ringo uh, <laughs> episode. Yeah. It'll be all it'll be all about 20, uh, 21 minutes, but we'll, we can we, we can pull that off. It'll be a mini episode. So, well, Chris, you know it don't come easy. No, 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 it doesn't. Uh, no, it doesn't. Uh, anyway, uh, so what's been going on? So this is the first time we've been uh, together live in a couple of months, right? Yeah. And in the last few, last, in those couple of months... Uh, we're doing an episode about a dead rock star. A whole lot of dead rock stars <laughs> have recently died. A lot of, sorry, a whole lot of rock stars have recently died. I should rephrase. Yeah, and, particularly and, and, David Crosby. And and apparently a few uh, uh, dead ones have re-died. Uh, no, you, you've got you know Jeff Beck, David Crosby. Uh, there's been a few others. Burt Bacharach. Bacharach. Uh, well, he wasn't really oh, rock. He was more like a was, pop song. Yeah. But yeah, and he was ninety four. But there've been there've been a few others. All of a sudden, you're starting to see these celebrities and these uh, these musical uh, types, these rock and roll types that are they're like between the ages of seventy eight and eighty two. Hmm. They're all dying after a brief illness. Yeah, uh, and it's like, oh boy, you know, brief brief illnesses are going to be coming a dime a dozen here down the pike because all these baby boomer uh, oh, icons. Yeah, they're old. <laughs> these old. Yeah, people, you know. Gotcha. But but hey, but at least we get to share reverence for one. And you know, if you think about it, the cult of this guy is so still so magnificent. It's like mm. you know, Lennon. Lennon may have been killed, but it's not like he's dead. No. If, if you think no. about it, which it, I guess that's part of what this episode is. Is it's like uh, he's still he's dead, and yet he's alive, but is how he's alive here in the 2020s as we go into younger generations, the same as how he was alive for, you know, when we were 15, right. uh, You know, back 30 years ago, I think that's a, that's a question and maybe something that triggers why we're doing this episode. Exactly. And speaking of triggers, uh, what really triggered uh, this episode and I have to make the, put, put myself here in a little bit of a selfish spot. Uh, about sure. several months ago, um, there was an issue of Mojo Magazine that uh, it, it was actually, it was toward the end of the year, and they did a really um, Victoria Segal is a very talented writer, really good writer, but she has atrocious taste in music. Like she has like some of the <laughs> worst taste in music of any music critic I've ever read. She writes really really well about bad music, but anyway, um, she did an article on the making of Revolver. 
And uh, because uh, Giles Martin, George Martin's son, just uh, was behind, I, th- I think he actually really partly released this these remix. There's this box set that has, has all these remixes of the songs off of Revolver. Supposedly, it's really good. I haven't heard it. Yeah, it's but, pretty impressive. Yeah. yeah. And um, anyway, uh, in her article, she's talking about the making of Revolver. And I had a big issue with that article because she de-emphasized John Lennon's role in that album and overly emphasized Paul McCartney's role in that album. Well, I wrote an email of complaint to Mojo and it got published. Yay. Uh, It got published, I believe, in... Let me see which issue it was. I'm going to go to it right now. It was published in the January of this year, January issue of Mojo. So this is what I wrote, okay, in, in complaint and in response to what I thought was a very unfair article. And I quote, Victoria Segal's lengthy article in Mojo 348, issue 348, on the making of the Beatles' revolver is a very well-written, insightful piece. Nevertheless, one cannot escape the feeling that Miss Segal has a deep bias toward Paul McCartney, considering how she spends so much time analyzing and praising McCartney's input into the album while minimizing the equally important contributions of George Harrison and, more egregiously, John Lennon. While Eleanor Rigby, Got to Get You Into My Life, and Good Day Sunshine received considerable descriptions as to their composition and background, you would think by reading the article that Tomorrow Never Knows is the only song Lennon provided for Revolver. Miss Seagal tips her hand into her bias when she writes, quote, here was the cosmic explorer, Paul, radiating positivity and possibility, and here too was the solipsist, John, feeling the pull towards all kinds of oblivion, whether sleep, birth, or death. A bit glib and snarky there, aren't we? It was Lennon, not McCartney, who had not even taken LSD at the time, who was the true cosmic explorer, of the band at this time. It was Lennon, with a little help from Harrison, who truly brought the psychedelia into Revolver, making it the psychedelic pop art opus that it's seen as today. His contributions to one of the band's several masterpiece albums should not be reduced to the result of sheer solipsism. Just because Paul McCartney is still alive and will probably read the article Miss Seagal wrote doesn't mean his role in the album's creation should be highlighted and favored as opposed to the practical sidelining of John Lennon, a man to whom many, if not most, Beatles fans was, is now, and forever will be the Beatle. Okay, well, hey, bravo. Uh, well done. Uh, the one thing I'll, I'll say to that is uh, Revolver is is a really is a really interesting record uh, in the sense that Paul's stuff on that is just beautiful. Sure, and it's it's got this uh, sophistication to it. Obviously, Eleanor Rigby with the the uh, the string quartet. Sure, uh, here here there and everywhere, which is as you know is is a bitch to to play. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's 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 a remarkably uh, sophisticated song. And, you know, even like got to get you into my life with the, you know, the sort of the, uh, the, the horn arrangements and all that. So he's got some really, really great stuff sure. uh, and uh, magnificent stuff on that record. And I remember being a 12 year old thinking it was a Paul record. And meanwhile, you know, the Lennon stuff doesn't, it's not as immediately accessible, but 
like you said, Revolver wouldn't be Revolver if you didn't have that infusion of like, and, and your bird can sing, which is, you know, got this kind of, uh, almost, um, poignancy that some of Paul's stuff doesn't have. And she, she only, and she said, she said, and I'm only sleeping, tripping yeah. up the heavens atmosphere of those songs. Listen, oh, John, yeah. John Lennon is what made that album psychedelic. Take Lennon sure. away and Revolver is nothing more than a Baroque pop album, not that far from the left bank. A very good Baroque pop album, but still, take yeah. Lennon away. It's not a psychedelic record. Sorry. Right. No, I, I understand. So it, it's there for, for counterbalance. But like, you know, like I said, Andrew Bird can sing is not necessarily, I wouldn't call that psychedelic. It's just, no. it's just this sort of beautiful, in, in a way, in terms of poignancy, it's right there on a par with For No One. It's by, power pop. Uh, to, to me, that song is more like power pop. You can hear yeah. you, you can hear the origins of Big Star there a little bit. Well, and then she said she said is power pop as well. I yeah. mean, really but then again, <laughs> yeah. <Lysergic> power pop. <laughs> yeah, but some of the stuff that uh, that McCartney's got on there. So, so to me, it's more balanced uh, than yeah. Obviously, that she thought it was, and there's a lot of folks that'll be like, okay, well, it, John's the standout. It's John's record. No, it's it's Paul's record. No, actually, it's both of their records. There's a, there's a balance to that and a real. Um, I think that there's, it's the last Beatles record that you can truly call a unified record. Mm. Mm. I mean, there, 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 there's a unified sound, there's a unified flow and you just get the sense that they're, they're helping each other and that there is a Beatles identity. Now, whether it comes like, even like Dr. Robert has, uh, has those like sort of silly harmony vocals where, you know, Paul kind of. Uh, kind of shows up a little bit like, uh, you know, Paul with the loops on uh, on Tomorrow Never Knows and just stuff like that. And so there's uh, so, you know, we're, we're talking about sort of Lennon's uh, uh, view and so how folks are, are viewing yeah, Lennon. Lennon was edgier, but, you know, him and uh, uh, Paul were one, they were professionals and two, they were really aligned in how they heard things and how they sure and, and how much fun they had. Yeah, uh, in making music, and so that's uh, that's a point to make up here front. That I, said, I, I would argue that alignment even went through to Sergeant Pepper's. I, I mean, even, yeah, even though the the, the quote unquote concepts not really a concept album, but I guess no, the, not really the, the thematic nature or the aesthetic concept of it really was Paul's idea. But let's not forget, Lennon had some of the best songs on that album too. You know, yeah, and, and, and well, the light, not, hello, Lucy in the sky, hello, you know? yeah, 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 yeah. Or like, yeah, or being for the benefit of Mr. Kite. So he kind of takes the uh, the concept of the carnival band, you know, mm-hmm. the anonymous carnival band and kind of like, you know, cranks it up to the heavens. So, but anyway, uh, yeah, you can tell, you know, Len- Lennon-McCartney is something that uh, Art and I are passionate about. I appreciate the fact that we're doing an appreciation of Lennon uh, because let's face it, uh, you know, McCartney is still alive. Yeah. Uh, you know, McCartney has been making, you know, uh, uh, big old, uh, big old, big old bucks from his stadium touring and all that. So there's plenty of appreciation out there for him in the mainstream. Yeah, uh, Len- Lennon's been kind of reserved uh, for the geeks, and now that may be fading a little bit uh, as well. Uh, uh, hello, cancel culture in in some respects. So that's why we're appreciating John now because there is plenty of reason to appreciate him uh, that that goes beyond uh, sort of him pushing the envelope. Wouldn't you say? Absolutely. But before we go into John, I think uh, we need to go somewhere else, don't we, Chris? 
Uh, yes, actually, and uh, uh, I assure you, Lennon is still dead over here, too. We're in the parallel <laughs> universe. Uh, I mean, if only the parallel universe was so awesome. It's not the upside down, it's the parallel universe over here. Uh, things things remix differently. Like, what happens if, like, uh, like it's almost like that movie Everything Everywhere All at Once. It's like, what happens if, like, the multiverse is skew and, like, you know, good music, you know, uh, like, uh, like Nirvana still ends up on the top of the charts in, like, 1994 or whatever. Oh, well, you know what I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, if it diverges in a way where it actually supports rock and roll bands. Uh, so, you know, who would be on the billboards, who would be on the cover of Rolling Stone? We'd still love uh, our rock and roll and people would still love our rock and roll. Uh, it wouldn't be a niche. And, uh, we would care much more about, uh, some of these bands, uh, than we care about like Rihanna and ASAP Rocky. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, Rihanna just played the Super Bowl here a few days ago. So anyway, with that said, uh, it's really a, a place where we review cool new albums or cool newish uh, records. Uh, meaning we, there's a vault here in the parallel universe where we can go back a decade and, and sort of like educate you, not just stuff that came out last week, but stuff that came out in 2012. Speaking of which, uh, yes. I understand you're going back to 2012 uh, this week, sir. Yes, I am. A few months ago, we featured the 2022 album, Oh Death, by the Swedish psychedelic rock band Goat in our parallel universe review segment. In that segment, I mentioned in passing that the band's debut album from 2012, World Music, was and how their early sound was very much akin to Jimi Hendrix joining forces with the African jazz funk grooves and general Afrobeat style of the legendary Fela Kuti with a little bit of early Santana thrown in. Well, here's that album <laughs> in a parallel universe where good music, at least a curmudgeonly definition of it, is up front and center in the pop cultural radar. This album, to this day the band's very best, would be considered an undisputed classic of the rock canon. Hypnotic, trancey, mesmerizing wah-wah pedal guitars that interwine and swirl through your speakers into the high heavens, deep ass and heavy bass grooves, spectral keyboards, haunting chant vocals, intoxicating polyrhythms that don't ignore the dance floor. This is music to have wild, nasty, sweaty, drug-induced sex to. Okay. Uh, the year 2012 was the peak of indie rock's infatuation with retro 80s synth pop and anything moody, mellow, and ethereal. Hence why it was alarming at the time to hear a record as uncompromisingly trippy, deep, and shrouded in 1970s hazy gauze as this album. Was it derivative of the past? No way. This is not music that regurgitates the past. It assimilates its influences and reshapes and fuses two whole genres or subgenres of music, psychedelic rock and 1970s Afrobeat, particularly of the Nigerian and Ghanan vintage, into something refreshingly new and inventive for a new generation of rock music fans sickened by corporate radio rock, shitty country music trying to be rock, and indie rock that has lost all of its counterculture spirit. Yeah, I, I, so I'll, I'll confess, I, I've spent very, very little time with this record. Okay. Uh, I know that it's, you've said that it's one of your missions in life this year to turn me into a big goat head. Uh, not, you know, goat head soup uh, or whatever <laughs> you want to call it. I'm going to be a goat head by the end of this year. Uh, from what, what 
I've heard of them so far, you know, the, the record, Oh Death. And from what you've told me, they're one of these records that one of these bands that keeps evolving into uh, new shades and forms and uh, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, trippy uh, phases of weirdness at where they, you know, they combine these polyrhythms or these, uh, whether it be uh, African rhythms, whether it be psychedelic, uh, you know, whether it be any sort of avant-garde, any of those types of things and put it together. So, yeah, I'm going to have to listen to this. Um, you know that I, you know, Oh Death finished number 11 on my uh, top 20 of last year. Uh, you know that I'm enthusiastic about them. I look forward to, to learning more. So there you go. In the parallel universe, there is such a thing as homework. And I have a homework assignment, but I also understand that you have a homework assignment too. Yes. It's right? an album that came out last year, right? Yeah. Yes. It just came out late in uh, 2022 and this is my record. And it's, in a, in a way, it's kind of a similar vein uh, of this sort of experimentation and, and kind of splicing and bending and, and trying some new things. Uh, this is a, a band. It's a, a young quartet called Horse Lords. Uh, two words, horse lords. Uh, they're a quartet of uh, young uh, uh, guys from Baltimore, uh, Maryland, and uh, their story essentially is is they're they're very avant garde, uh, and they uh, are very much into uh, what uh, music, uh, like actual musos and actual you know Berkeley school music types will know, uh, what's known as just intonation which is just this very sort of uh, very refined, very almost wonky, but very uh, in a way exotic, but also like kind of hit you in the mush uh, system of tuning uh, of these, uh, you know, of their instruments. And, you know, guys like James Tenney, uh, an old uh, avant-garde composer, uh, favored these. Uh, they also uh, mess around with microtonal uh, sounds and rhythms, uh, and, and also polyrhythms. So they're a little bit much, uh, kind of like King Gizzard these days. And so, you know, you hear avant-garde and you hear these guys like walking around with guitars. It's like, Oh shit, make it stop, make it shit, uh, stop, make it stop. I mean, you'd think like, uh, you'd think like Brian, you know, wannabes from like New Jersey. Uh, no, uh, these guys are actually really, really strong. They're really good. They've been around for a decade. And uh, their new record uh, released uh, recently is known as Comradely Objects. Uh, and so I definitely recommend uh, this record. It's funkier than it has a right to be. And that's what these guys do is they, they build these songs with these, uh, this just intonation uh, uh, tunings of the guitar, uh, you know, sort of custom made fretboards. And uh, they build these things where it's essentially it's bass, uh, the, the guitar, uh, sax and percussion. And they build these things and they're very much jam bandish. They're almost kind of like a almost natural instrument instrumentation version of the disco biscuits. You remember them? Oh, yeah. I actually kind of like them. Yeah. And, you know, there's a little bit of fish going on there. There's uh, a lot of David Byrne. I mean, if there's anybody that would be kind of a forefather. Uh, that people know of for this kind of avant-garde, uh, it would be um, it would be David Byrne. Uh, yes, there is uh, there is some Mauritan, uh, Mauritanian influence and uh, other African influence, uh, and then you know you get some minimalism uh, here uh, here and there as well. And so it's just this it's it gallops and at some points, but it it gets funky. 
uh, and so, yeah, four white boys from Baltimore who are avant-gardists who managed to get funky uh, for streaks. The way you make it sound more like theoretical music than actual music. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, well, I mean, but then again, I mean, if, you ha- if you've never heard King Gizzard, you could say the same thing about them. Yeah. You know what I mean? It, yeah. it, it's all based on musical theory. There's a lot of musical theory. There's a lot of experimentation. There's a lot of, like I said, let's make this instrument homemade. Now let's see what this would sound like in this key at this time, signature, uh, those types of things. But it all plays out very, very, very well. Yeah. I, I would call gizzard theory. Gizzard, gizzard is more like gimmicks. <laughs> gimmicks and yeah. how to present the music. Present Different presentations of the music is kind of like their thing. Hey, it's Chris. Uh, Yours truly curmudgeons record the curmudgeon rock report using a program called Zencaster. And we have used uh, this program since we launched a little over two years ago. And much like we have evolved, so has Zencaster. The company was essentially in early startup mode at the time. And, you know, there have been bugs and annoyances along the way. But one thing has remained consistent the quality and the value for us of the product itself. You see, Zencaster records the tracks of a podcast's participants natively. That means our recording session itself is never subject to the inherent unpredictability of the cloud or the inevitable half-assness that some all-in-one podcasting platforms will have across their functions. Most importantly... Since I am in Houston and Arturo is in South Korea, reliable recordings and excellent capture of our Ars Technica USB microphones is absolutely essential. So here we are now in 2023, 50-something episodes into this curmudgeonly journey. And here Zencaster remains. The company just switched from a credits model to a subscription model. Zencaster, we believe, is headed for big things, and we strongly suggest that you use it to record your own podcast. We now return to our regularly scheduled program. Rock on. Okay, so now let us start talking about John Lennon uh, in earnest, uh, and we call this an appreciation of, of Lennon, and I guess since uh, you can't have a conversation about any of the Beatles uh, individually without like, you know, talking about the Beatles. Uh, I guess that's a starting place uh, for our conversation. I mean, we'll eventually uh, segue into Lennon's solo output in the 1970s uh, up to the uh, time of his assassination there in 1980. Uh, but let's start at the beginning and uh, Art, you know, let's, you know, sort of talk about uh, Lennon's role in the Beatles as you see it. And sort of, if you had to put Lennon in context, as opposed to you know, as, as in terms of what he contributed and any any ways that any and the things that would distinguish him, like really distinguish him in your mind, uh, uh, let's get into that. Yeah, I mean, any discussion of Lennon's music and impact has to begin with his role in and what he meant to the Beatles, uh, and not just as one of the two lead writers and singers. And I, I think there are three main bullet points. The first one is John as cultural and pop cultural barometer. Now, what does that mean? Well, let me explain. In their heyday, it really isn't an understatement to say that the Beatles not only had their fingers on the pulse of pop culture at the time, 
but that they literally were the pulse of pop culture at the time of the 1960s. Radio, records, movies, TV specials, talk shows. The Beatles were ubiquitous to the extent that Taylor Swift is today, but perhaps even more so due to the lack of media consumption options that people had back then. And for as much as a cultural barometer as the Beatles were as an entity, the one member of the band whose antenna were most attuned to the drifting winds of where pop culture and society were at the time was indeed John Lennon. Yeah. Yes, there was George Harrison who introduced the music of Bob Dylan to the Beatles, but it was Lennon who really absorbed and was changed by that influence, evident by his more introspective acoustic material and lyrical growth and maturity on the album's Help and Rubber Soul. Yes, Paul McCartney expressed an interest in avant-garde music in the mid-1960s and had a keen sense for counterculture fashion that he helped bring into the band. But his interest and dabblings in such things while he was in the Beatles were really short-lived and very peripheral, almost superficial. Uh, he remained a resolute pop songsmith and a attention-loving pop star at heart. Well, so was Lennon, but that's another discussion. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. And Lennon loved attention. Um, however, yep. back to this subject, Lennon, on the other hand, had a more ambiguous relationship with fame and a more thoughtful attitude toward it, even though he went after it, um, as shown by his almost performance art approach toward media manipulation that he would show in the late 1960s, early 1970s, as well as a more meaningful connection to the burgeoning counterculture of the period. He, yeah. act he actually bought uh, into the ideology and brought that ideology into the band with a little of a help from Harrison. Um, yeah. But it was an ideology that would in turn evolve within the context of rock music to manifest itself as the punk, post-punk, alternative, and indie rock movements of the future. John Lennon deserves some credit for that. Um, this was evident by the edgier nature of his music, generally edgier, and the increasing surrealism and impressionism of his lyrics. More on that later. Of course, one could also say Harrison was down with the counterculture as well, but his interest in such a thing came from a spiritual religious perspective. Sure. Via his immersion in Hinduism and all the cranky, self-righteous preachiness that, that came. Yeah, well, the Hare Krishnas. He was down with the Hare Krishnas. Yeah, you know? I know. You know, hello, the majority of Harrison's solo work, which isn't really that great. Um, yep. as, as far as politics and social commentary go, None of the other Beatles came close to the widespread net that Lennon used to address mm -hmm. it in his lyrics, whether by direct language, revolution, most of his solo work, or by coded symbolism and allegories, the continuing story of Bungalow Bill, Come Together, Baby You're a Rich Man, etc. And let's not forget, it was Lennon, with some nudging from his wife, Yoko, more so than the other Beatles who fully embraced feminism and espoused it in song. More on, much more on that later. Oh, yeah. Uh, McCartney may have written Give Ireland to the Irish, but it was Lennon who wrote two songs on the same album of that year that, that he released that more directly addressed the troubles in Ireland and with more urgency, emotion, and power. Much more on that later.
Uh, Lenin's countercultural credibility would become more overt and explicit by the end of his Beatles run and leading up to Richard Nixon's reelection in 1972, leading to his disillusionment with the far left movement, his brief separation from Yoko Ono, and his debaucherous quote unquote lost weekend. But that wasn't the only way Lenin reflected his time. You can look at the man's 40 year life. And every major period of it parallels the evolution of the baby boomer generation for better, yeah, pretty much. Or, for better or for worse, more than practically any artist of his era, including Bob Dylan. You have Beatlemania equals the baby boomers coming of age and self-actualizing. The Beatles psychedelic era, of which Lennon had the most psychedelic material, as we'll show later, equals the baby boomers blowing up their perception of the world into technicolor. Lenin's late 60s, early 70s immersion into far leftist politics and more controversial music equals the baby boomers getting serious and trying to change the world into their image. Lenin's withdrawal from political activism and deep dive into booze and cocaine from 1973 to 75 equals the baby boomers fashioning the 1970s into the me decade. Lenin's reunion with Ono and settling into domesticity and family bliss equals the baby boomers reaching middle age and becoming yuppies. More than any of the other Beatles, and by some measure actually, Lenin was the media talisman and cultural ambassador. And while his peace activism died out, his empathy, idealism, and keen insight into and awareness of the world around him never died. And any cursory read through the interviews he gave from 1975 onward, and any cursory listen to his solo discography up to his death would reveal that. Chris? Yeah. I mean, for a guy who professed, you know, he did the Arthur Janoff screen therapy and for the guy who professed to have those, those sensitivities to uh, whatever invasions of privacy and whatever was going on in the world and that sort of political anger, yeah. uh, he's probably, he's the one that lived his life out most, uh, the most publicly, you know, he, he, he's, he kind of, he never quite, uh, uh, I know he, this supposedly disappeared for four years, but he would still show up. He'd show up on like Monday night football, like randomly and uh, stuff like that. So he wasn't completely gone, but uh, no one lived their lives. Uh, even McCartney, I mean, McCartney would be on tour, but when he wasn't on tour, he would disappear, you know? Yeah. And, and so there was, there was that, you know, McCartney never really had much controversial about him except for getting arrested, but busted for pot at an airport or something. But yeah. But, and so I always found that kind of fascinating that, you know, you know, don't, you know, don't believe in Hitler. Don't believe in Beatles. Just believe in me. Oh, okay. Well, but you never got off the stage. Well, no, no, Um, no. Lenin wasn't saying don't believe it. He was saying, I don't believe in Beatles. I don't believe in Zimmerman. Right. I just believe. Yeah. I just believe. That's what I mean. I I just believe in me. And so, so that's what, that's what I'm saying. It's like, he's. It's like he, he's rejecting all of this stuff that's swirling around him. And it's just like, I just believe in me and Yoko. Yeah. It's like, okay, well, that sounds like a song where you're saying sayonara, but nope, you, ne- you never went away. All right. The second major bullet point, and this is one that Chris and I have had many discussions about dating back to our uh, years in college. <laughs> yeah, John, for sure. John as rocker versus Paul as balladeer. Kurt Cobain once gave a great quote regarding his view of the John Paul dichotomy. Quote, John Lennon was definitely my favorite Beatle, hands down. 
I don't know who wrote what parts of what Beatles songs, but McCartney embarrasses me. Lennon was obviously disturbed, so I could relate to that. Well, first of all, I I, I, I kind of <laughs> I, I, I doubt Cobain didn't know what parts of what Beatles songs wrote because he was pretty much a Beatles fanatic. I mean, he knew his shit. Yeah. But mm-hmm. the point is, what Cobain when Cobain says disturbed, I interpret that as edgy, anguished, rebellious, nonconformist. In other words, adjectives that describe some of the elements that make up the best rock and roll. And of the two lead Beatles, Lennon is the one who has always been characterized as, quote unquote, the rocker. Is that fair or accurate? Well, let's take a look. Yes, Lennon could be every bit the balladeer that McCartney supposedly was. In My Life from Rubber Soul, both Dear Prudence and Julia from the White Album, Because from Abbey Road, the classic solo singles, Imagine and Jealous Guy. And yes, McCartney could rock it out with the best of them, both Helter Skelter and Birthday from the White Album, Paperback Writer, the help B-side of the very underrated I'm Down. But if you take the entirety of the Beatles discography and analyze it and really break it down, you'll find that that stereotypical characterization of the two men is fairly or mostly accurate. Lennon, at least not in this period of his life, could never bring himself to write something as trite or as silly as McCartney's ode to his dog, Martha My Dear. (laughs) One of them... One of only two or three bad songs on the White Album, the other being that the Maudlin McCartney stinker, I Will, which I hate to this day. Oh, I love that record. I love that song. When Garth Brooks covers it, you know it sucks. Oh, stop. (laughs) Likewise, McCartney never had the angst and self-awareness that fueled such raging and desperate tracks as help. He never had the balls or the political insight to serve up something like revolution, even though Paul and George assisted in speeding up the track. He never came up with anything as swampy and as funky as come together. He never came close to the full-blown, acid-fried, psychedelic majesty that that Lennon summoned with his 1966 triptych of songs, Rain, She Said, She Said, and Tomorrow Never Knows. He never produced anything as visceral as the exposed nerve rawness of cold turkey. He never had the gall to come up with something as cryptic and as heavy as I Am the Walrus. And speaking of heavy, Lennon's song about his devotion to Yoko Ono, I Want You, She's So Heavy, is not only one of the three or four best songs on all of Abbey Road, it's also the track that arguably gave birth to grunge. You can hear the embryo of Alice in Chains being formed with every churning chord change of that song. And it's more than just rocking out where Lennon mattered. Chris, you can debate me for ages on this, but I will go to my grave maintaining that on every Beatle album, no matter how much McCartney wanted to dominate, Lennon always stole the show with the best song or songs. Every Beatle brought their A-game at the time to Rubber Soul, but nothing stands out quite like Nowhere Man and In My Life. Advantage John. I mentioned earlier in my letter to Mojo that it was Lennon who truly made Revolver psychedelic with his innovative and cutting-edge compositions. And despite the brilliance of Eleanor Rigby and For No One, Tomorrow Never Knows, She Said, She Said, and I'm Only Sleeping endure just as much, if not more so, and truly give Revolver its lysergic sheen advantage. John, 
McCartney may have driven the aesthetic and quasi concept of Sgt. Pepper's and wrote half the songs, but it was Lennon who provided the album its dark, subversive edge with Lucy with this, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds and the all-time classic A Day in the Life, Advantage John. The White Album is my personal favorite Beatle album, and while McCartney has his share of brilliant songs on it, the chinks in his quality control armor start to show by this time. See, I Will, Martha My Dear, Wild Honey Pie, yeah, granny music indeed, <laughs> while Lennon hits it out of the park with all of his tracks, including the rollicking surrealism of everybody's got something to hide except me and my monkey, and even the avant-garde sampling fest of Revolution 9, which in its twisted way totally aligns with the fractured, fragmented aesthetic of the album, as well as its subtle, underrated theme of satirizing straight society. Oh yeah, and that other supposedly Paul-dominant album, Abbey Road? Yes, it's George Harrison's coming out party with Here Comes the Sun and Something. But the other two fantastic tracks that make up the top four on the album, in my opinion, are John's, uh, the aforemen- are John's, the aforementioned Come Together and I Want You, She's So Heavy. And the worst song on that album... Sorry to say, McCartney's Maxwell Silver Hammer, a song so stupid and embarrassing that the other three Beatles despised it immensely. Are you but, telling? But they, but, but they all played on it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, they all played. They, they all had to. Are you telling me Abbey Road couldn't have been improved by replacing that song with Lennon's? Oh, I know. That's Lennon's the Cold Turkey, which he offered for inclusion but was rejected due to its obvious heroin withdrawal connotation. Give yeah, I know. I mean, well, I remember, you know, at that time that they were so divergent by the end. It's like, it's amazing how they could still be in the same band. Cause yeah. you know, like in the, in the Peter Jackson documentary, the, uh, the let it be documentary, uh, where, uh, where Lennon brings in, give me some truth that he's still working on it. And the other guys are like, meh. And I think that, uh, uh, Harrison brings in all things must pass. And they all went, eh. <laughs> yeah. And they're like, meh. And, 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 and the one that they all hated from Paul is that Paul was working on, was working on Maxwell silver hammer during that too. Mm. And they were just like, and so they, they were all starting to do stuff that like, yeah, man, you can keep that one. Uh, so that's just kind of funny. But anyway, so the whole point here is you're saying that these guys fall into these, you know, the conventional wisdom is that Lennon is the rocker and that uh, McCartney is the balladeer. I mean, it doesn't come from nowhere. I mean, in uh, August of 1968, one of the greatest singles ever released. And I think I'm getting the sides right here. Side A was Hey Jude and side B was Revolution. Yeah. And so uh, you want to talk about a contrast. You've got uh, McCartney's uh, Ode to the Struggles of uh, John's Young Son, Julian, mm-hmm. and this, uh, this really sort of tender uh, ballad uh, take on it, followed by a call and response sing song in which McCartney does his best impression of Little Richard, uh, and then you get the uh, the B side, which is this sort of sped up uh, groovy tune, but it's basically John screaming about how he doesn't want anything to do with warmongers, right. and but also has like the most transcendent, uh, transcendently positive and uplifting chorus imaginable. you know you know you know it's gonna be all right even though you know like you know you know don't don't have me anything to do with bombs and keep your pictures at chairman Mao. and so if you think about it so like you've got one one like kind of uh stretched out 
seven minute long crooning croony ballad and another just uh, balls out political rocker. Right. And so, okay. So, the, you know, they, they shared in that, but I do think that there's more balance than they, than those guys get credit for, especially in the early catalog. Sure, I mean, sure. you know, you think about it. I mean, yes. Uh, you know, Lennon was more apt to, to front the, uh, the covers, you know, the twist and shouts and the, uh, wait a minute, Mr. Postman's and, you know, some of those covers that they did in the first couple of records. But, you know, like you said, you know, McCartney had down McCartney had all my loving uh, McCartney had, she, she loves you, uh, which, you know, are ballads, but they're really sped up. Uh, you know, and then like, you know, Lennon had a hard day's night. Um, but I disagree with you, obviously rubber soul. The best stuff on that is Paul's disagree uh, yeah in my life is the song off that album the most important song on that record yeah well but i mean i'm, I'm looking through you my michelle uh yeah i mean in my life is important yeah norwegian wood i think was kind of a breakthrough for them okay, norwegian I'll... wood nor nowhere man in my life lyrically better than anything mccartney wrote on that album oh no mccartney's got a couple of classics on that record i mean it, I said it's lyrically McCartney was always the the lyrical weak link of the Beatles. Yeah, but but he's uh, there's a balance on that record. And, sure, you know, absolutely. M- McCartney's absolutely inspired on that sure, record. L- sure. Lennon is absolutely inspired. Right. Uh, yeah. I'm, Len- I'm, 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 just, I'm just saying, John's stuff was just a just a nudge better. It really yeah. Was. No, I, I think they're on a par. I I think by calling that Lennon's record, that kind of demeans. Uh, you know, McCartney was in a was in a a real wheelhouse on that record. You know, like I said, I mean, Revolver, I mean, remember, uh, Eleanor Rigby is his, uh, is his innovation, uh, Good Day Sunshine, which is sure. this little pop, you know, little silly pop ditty, but it's great, uh, for no one, which I think is an incredibly underrated song. And then, yeah, Here, There, and Everywhere, which- and It's funny, into- the, the biggest hit off Revolver is the one Ringo sang. Yeah, I know. And that's what I was going to get at, is that, <laughs> the, is that Yellow Sub, well, here, here's where I'm going with this. You know, I think that this idea, uh, the the split, I think that John uh, had some of their better ballads. I mean, think about it. Like Julia is an incredible uh, song off the White Album. Uh, you know, and some of some of the uh, softer songs, uh, you know, that he did, um, like Girl, like it's My Michelle is Paul's ballad uh, uh, highlight, and then yeah, you get Girl and In My Life. And, you know, you just, you just sort of go from there. Uh, and I just, I, I mean, it pisses me off. You've got birthday and then two songs later, you've got, everybody's got something to hide except for me and my monkey. Yeah. Both, both yeah. could be trivial if they wanted to. Yeah. I yeah. Know. You know, back in the USSR and then not only that, but then they worked on the ballad of John and Yoko together. Yeah. And so there's more of a unity than I think people think. And the thing that the people have to remember, too, is that uh, John's song, sure, they might have been a little bit more rock and they might have been a little bit more steeped in uh, Chuck Berry and, and the sort of the, uh, you know, that that sort of early rock and roll blues uh, period. They might have been steeped in that. And, you know, obviously, Billy Preston, well, I mean, it was George Harrison's buddy, but, but, but you know, kind of Lennon leaned on him a little bit more. Yeah. But M- McCartney routinely doctored arrangements and made John's songs better. I mean... John's recordings in the Beatles would not be as memorable if it wasn't for McCartney, you know, McCartney's bass playing on some of those things. Uh, You know, as, as we learned from the let it be documentary uh, where, uh, where they're writing, don't let me down. And McCartney essentially wrote the bridge in real time 
and, and, and let and everybody like, else through it. Right. And, so, like, and likewise, McCartney's songs and the Beatles wouldn't have been as good without Harrison's lead guitar playing, without or, some, of the, some, some of the edge and the beautiful oh, back, I know. backing vocals that Lennon provided. Oh, that, and that's what I mean. And, and, it, and, it, and it, was the same, it was the same thing with, uh, with Paul. And like, you know, I got a feeling where uh, it's the same thing in the movie where you see Lennon writing his little cross melody thing in the second half of it on the fly. Uh, in that too. And so I just think that they lent, uh, they lent each other and they, they were just had a synergy to them and they had a working relationship. Uh, a quote that I found on the internet from Lennon, uh, this is in a, a compilation that parade magazine had. Uh, he says, quote, if I can't have a fight with my best friend, I don't know who I can have a fight with. <laughs> That's a good point. Uh, yeah. yeah. And so you could just tell that those guys just had a lot of fun, uh, you know, making, making these records and, and they had a banter to them. This is for, uh, from a, uh, an author named uh, Kenneth Womack uh, included this in a cycle in an encyclopedia uh, evidently when they were recording the ballad of John and Yoko, which, you know, famously done in Paul's house, uh, done in seven hours. Uh, you know, Lennon was in this like creative frenzy and McCartney's just trying to help him out. And so yeah. it's the two of them. And so evidently on the tape at one point, they're, uh, they're stopping. And so they're kind of, uh, you know, they're, they're kind of coaching each other. So Lennon goes, go a bit faster, Ringo. And, McCart- <laughs> and McCartney response, response, okay, George. Uh, you know, when, because you know, that's when Lennon's playing guitar and McCartney's playing drums. So, uh, you know, so you just look at, you know, look at it that way. And I mean, one thing we can talk about too, is that, uh, as they went along, yeah, sure, you can say that, you know, Paul was the balladeer and the and more domestic, and John was the angrier, more bitter, more worldly guy. See, so by the time we get to Walls and Bridges in 74, and then obviously Double Fantasy in 1980, Lennon is out McCartneying McCartney. And yeah. the fi- our final bullet point that to, in order to understand the importance of Lennon within the Beatles, uh-huh. John as leader. This is my favorite one. Since seemingly forever, people have speculated as to who the real individual leader of the Beatles was. In various interviews given in their middle age, both Ringo Starr and George Harrison have either intimated or explicitly said it was Lennon. McCartney, not so much. And it's pretty easy to understand why. Two years ago, Chris, you already referenced referenced this a few times, but uh, Peter Jackson put out his seven and a half hour found footage documentary series Opus about the troubled recording sessions the Beatles underwent in early 1969 called Get Back. Money management issues as well as individuals growing apart creatively, as I said earlier, were at the core of the band coming apart at the seams. But one of the most understated elements revealed in this series is that this period represented the peak of Lennon's heroin addiction. Yeah. This along with his creative impasse with McCartney meant that old John had one foot out the proverbial door. Paul understandably so took this as his cue to step up and be the dominant member of the band with the hope of keeping things together. The problem, however, is McCartney's way of keeping things together was to be egomaniacal, domineering, controlling, and frankly, quite patronizing, especially toward Harrison. Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, The other three are clearly seen to be dragging their feet through the experience. Why? Because at no point in the band's history was Paul McCartney ever 
the fucking leader of that fucking band. Okay. Nope. Harrison especially bristled. He had no problem being a number two to a Lennon McCartney partnership at number one, but he but he had a big problem being number three to a hierarchy of Lennon at number two and McCartney at number one. And he very yeah. briefly quit the band as a result. Yep. Fast, fast forward a week or so, maybe just a few days, I forgot. It was the like a band, week, yeah. Yeah, the mm-hmm. band moved from the stuffy confines of Twickenham Studios to the comfort of Abbey Road Studios. Lennon came in clean-shaven, his hair washed, and seemingly clean and sober. More importantly, he was engaged in the proceedings, active in the musical direction, suggesting ideas and gently putting them over to the rest of the band, i.e. not being an overeager, square, dorky, wannabe leader a la Paul. And guess what? All the other Beatles fell in line, even McCartney. Case in in point, there's a very subtle yet very powerful blinket and you miss it scene in the documentary series where to the side of the camera, this is in the Abbey Road Studios section of of the series, to the side of the screen, a newly engaged Lennon is conversing with McCartney and suggesting, advising, slash advising what they should do for a certain song. And without sarcasm and very unselfconsciously, McCartney McCartney succinctly responds with, okay, you're the boss. (laughs) That spoke volumes. He didn't say it sarcastically or ironically. He said, okay, John, you're the boss. I mean, think about that. Also, when Harrison briefly quit the Beatles, who was it who went to George's house to convince him to come back into the fold? It was Lennon. Why? Because that's what leaders do. Chris? Yeah, well, I mean... From what I remember, all three of them went over there at first. At but, first, right? But it was Lennon yeah. who actually like one yeah, on one. You know. Yeah, Len- Lennon's the one that negotiated it to get him back. Uh, and and remember, I mean, they uh, the director there, what's his name, <laughs> the guy that wanted them to go to Libya. Yeah. Uh, he, uh, his po- folks had planted bugs all, all over the studio to catch private conversations. And, yeah. And, you know, where you get it where like Paul is freaking out and he kind of admits to it. one that he's got that perfectionism, but two, he's panicking in the sense that George is kind of coming into his own that, you know, George, you know, it, he was like a late bloomer, you know, in terms of his songwriting voice and all of that. And, and so it was like, he was losing control and, yeah. you know, Lennon's like, well, you know, Hey, what'd you expect? Uh, but, (laughs) but, but Paul also says, remember it's at the beginning of part two, he actually says, well, you know, this is John's band, you know? And he says, and he said, yeah, this is John's band. And I think what was happening was, is he, you know, he saw that, you know, that John was, was angry and hurt and, um, you know, going through his, you know, whatever depressive, you know, drug, drug addiction period. And he, I think he just, and with, with Epstein died, I think when he was perfectionist and he was definitely way more afraid of failure than John was, Right. you know, for yeah. his, exper- for as experimental as those guys were. Um, well, it's different. I mean, you know, obviously McCartney is an incredibly confident and competent and brilliant arranger and musical mind. Yeah. Like, you know, when you see him like writing those songs on the fly, but not only that, but like, again, just sort of those on the fly arrangements, it's that don't let me down scene or the, some of the ways he's like arranging some of these songs as, as he goes and like, you know, suggesting 
suggesting parts and all that. The guy was brilliant. He was, he was plugged in, but he did not want that to fail. I think he was going to see that as like a mortal wound. Sure. Uh, whereas like Lennon, I think, I think everybody else saw that, you know, like, you know, that Paul was driving them crazy because of that. And the rest of them are like, you know, like Ringo at that point said, you know, I want to go act. I want to go act and I want to go like do cocaine out in LA. And uh, <laughs> here's a, a fine distinction between Lennon and McCartney. Both of these guys were narcissists. Let's face it. Oh yeah. I mean, um, but yeah, in, in their own ways, they definitely were narcissists, but John, yeah. John craved media attention for uh, yeah. Paul craved being popular. That's the difference. Yeah, ex- exactly. You know, like, you know, Lennon, Lennon was like, look at me and look at all the crap that's coming out of my mouth. Whereas like McCartney wants, like, uh, every song has to be a number one single, right? <laughs> you know, yeah. I want everybody to like what I'm doing. And Lennon's like, you know, I don't care if you like me, I just want you to pay attention to me, you know? Right. And so it's yeah. like, you know, they, they both wanted to kind of, uh, live there and they, they, they kind of lived for that validation one way or the other. So, so you know, they really weren't, I guess, weren't that different. And you're right. You know, Lennon, it was Lennon's band at the beginning. You know, Lennon was the one that led the charge when they were in Hamburg. I mean, he was, uh, you know, the idea is, you know, they started off as a skiffle band and then it was like, I think it was his obsession with Chuck Berry that kind of drove the early development of the band sure. for sure. Yeah. Uh, especially Chuck Berry, but you know, and a couple of those other guys. Um, and so, but you know, Paul, I mean, you can make the debate, like who was more talented, um, doesn't matter. It, like you're talking like the two of the two of the what the five best songwriters in the history of me, of popular music. Yeah, <laughs> essentially. So I mean, that's kind of a stupid argument. On this episode, we examine the music and greatness of John Lennon. For the next episode, the Curmudgeon Rock Report will go back to countdown mode as we take on what is essentially the lifeblood of every bar band aspiring to make it in the world of music. Cover songs! That's right, we will bring you the definitive list of the 50 greatest rock cover versions of all time, i.e. versions of songs that are better than the original versions. There are a hell of a lot of awesome cover versions out there, so yours truly curmudgeons will do you all a favor and whittle the very best to a manageable list of 50. So, join us in two weeks as we give you the 50 greatest rock cover versions of all time. Okay, so obviously we had to kind of go back and forth and talk about Lennon's uh, Lennon in context of the Beatles for it's the Beatles that don't bring them to the dance. But alas, the Beatles break up there in 1970 and Lennon is now establishing himself on his own. Uh, And let me give you a couple of quotes to kind of set up the, uh, the tone and the, uh, the switches and kind of the, the beginning of his journey and the end of his journey. Um, so first quote, and again, this comes from an article that Parade put out a few years ago that kind of rolls up 65 uh, uh, interesting Lennon quotes. He says, quote, when you're drowning, you don't think I would be incredibly pleased if someone would notice I'm drowning and come and rescue me. You just scream. Mm. And so I think that that kind of speaks to the emotional beginnings of this transitional period. And then he has another quote where he says, quote, rituals are important. Nowadays, it's hip not to be married. I'm not interested in being hip. <laughs> and so it kind of speaks to, he goes from this sort of angry, desperate, 
panic, depression, to this contentment. And uh, I think both of them are consistent with what we know to be the guy's personality and his drollness and his wit. Mm-hmm. Right. And that, and that really sets up his uh, his uh, 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 singles or his solo catalog, uh, some of which is some of the best stuff ever done and some of which is complete garbage. So, yeah, uh, that said, uh, let's start from the beginning and the best there, Arturo. Yeah. Um, this early period of his solo career is my personal favorite. Mine too. Is what I call the John and Yoko versus the world era. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And the first album is an absolute stone cold all time, like ranks up there with some of the best Beatles albums albums. This is Plastic Ono Band from 1970. Now, contrary to what John Lennon himself said at the time and what Yoko Ono may say now, the Plastic Ono Band was ostensibly John Lennon's solo. Much like Wings was basically Paul McCartney's solo. Yeah. Also, to really appreciate this album, you have to understand the historical context in which it was made. The year 1970 was when the Beatles broke up, and it was the peak period of Lennon's acrimony with McCartney, as evident by the now legendary and incendiary interview he gave with Rolling Stone magazine that year. Uh, You can go on YouTube and actually uh, listen to the recording of that interview all the way through. It's really fascinating. Uh, When he went into the studio with nothing more than Ringo Starr on drums and Klaus Vorman on bass with Phil Spector, Phil Spector co-producing and Billy Preston guesting on one track, Lennon's intent was to make the most stripped down, minimalist, emotionally honest pop rock statement he could make at the time. And it was a statement he needed to make at the time. Earlier in the year, Lennon released a standalone single, Instant Karma, that would become a huge international hit and one of his signature solo songs. It was also, with its stark production, rudimentary instrumentation, and bombastic course, a sneak peek into the sound of the album that he would put out later in the year. Uh, More than just a rejection of all the color and, shall we say, the bigness (laughs) that the Beatles represented, Plastic Ono Band represents a catharsis. It's a letting go of all the anguish and torment going on in the man's mind at the time. Lennon at the time was going through what today people would deem mental health issues and severe depression. Uh, He spent four weeks in London undergoing extensive psychotherapy with renowned psychologist Arthur Yanov. And this album, (laughs) in its chilling tone, in its tense mood, in its tight, compressed sound, in its often haunting lyrics, this album is the result. All of his childhood trauma being abandoned by his parents, reconciling with his mother only to have her die shortly after, and the emotional mental toll exacted by the entirety of the Beatles' experience, kind of a trauma in its own weird way, uh, came pouring out in music so stark, so powerful, and so moving that it's almost difficult to give it back-to-back listens. Uh, The anguished screams at the end of the brilliantly visceral mother, uh, which is Lennon's desperate plea to the ghosts of his parents in his mind, can give chills to even the harshest cynic. Um, You have the intense folk ballad, Working Class Hero, where he manages to snidely put down his image as spokesperson for a generation, while at the same time giving the socio-political reasons 
why people need a spokesperson in the first place. Yep. It's really clever. And of course, the album's breathtaking finale, God, where he repeatedly quotes one of Dr. Yanov's sayings, God is a concept by which we measure our pain. He repeats it as a mantra before going on on a list of things he doesn't believe in anymore, including Jesus, Buddha, Bob Dylan, and even the Beatles. Zimmerman. When he's, I don't believe in Zimmerman. He means yeah. Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan. Yeah. Um, it's a heavy, heart-wrenching, visceral experience for a music listener, and everything good pop art should be. It's not only his best solo album, it's quite possibly the best solo Beatle album, period. Chris? Yeah, it's it's really uh, between uh, that and All Things Must Pass as as uh, the best uh, solo records. And, uh, but I would put this number one. Matter of fact, I think this is one of the best 50 records ever made. Mm-hmm. Um, the Dream is Over, uh, What Can I Say? Uh, you know, As kind of a punctuation mark uh, at the end of this record, at the end of, of God. And, you know, you, you're right. I mean, he has the trauma of, you know, the abandonment of his parents. But not only that, but think about the decade he had just gone through with uh, between Beatlemania and uh, the divorce uh, from his first wife and the strained relationship that he had with uh, with her and uh, with his first son. And then uh, uh, all the media scrutiny and all the shit that him and uh, Yoko were taking uh you know the stuff with with Paul, the the break, you know, the dissolution of uh, of the band, uh, coming off of heroin to you know the drug addiction and all of that, and so he's in a really raw place there in mm-hmm. uh, the beginning of of, of 1970. If anybody wants to read an uh, an incredible account of what Lennon went through, uh, David Brown's book uh, Fire and Rain, yeah, uh, which is a recounting of American rock and roll in 1970 that focuses on the Beatles in part. Um, and it's just really, uh, you put all of that in context, plus the Yanoff therapy and you get that, you know, it's not just the minimalism. It's just, there's a power in his voice. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, even the gentler stuff, even the, you know, uh, you know, the, some of the love songs on it, there's a, a, a vulnerability, uh, uh, and, and inertia. Uh, and it's not even a, you know, like even God is not a confident song. It's, I just believe in me and in Yoko and me, but he, he, he doesn't know where he's going. He just knows where he's been and he just knows what he doesn't want to do anymore. Uh, so after uh, Plastic Ono Band uh, comes out, uh, you know, Lennon is now, he's kind of still emerging from this anger, you know, this sort of cloud of post-Beatles, post-heroin, and all of that. And so you get this really kind of uneven but fascinating record that comes next. Uh, would you agree with my assessment there? It, I don't think it's uneven at all. I think it's absolutely brilliant record. We're talking about okay. Imagine from 1971. After the brilliant yet emotionally draining <laughs> plastic on a band album to say the least it was kind of time for Lennon to cash in and have some hits mm-hmm. uh, after all both George and Paul scored hit singles off their recent solo albums so how did John respond by giving us one of the most transcendent sublime stirring pop ballads ever written in the title track oh yeah a song, a song that to this day has lost none of its yearning and power. Lenin himself called it, quote, an anti-religious, anti-nationalistic, anti-conventional, 
anti-capitalistic song, but I but because it's sugarcoated, it was accepted. End quote. Mm-hmm. Honestly, yeah. I won't delve. I will not delve too much into the song. Imagine because enough has been written about it, and you can all all of you listening out there, you can find that stuff online. By doing so, I would not be doing justice to the rest of the album, right. which has some of the most magnificent work of Lennon's magnificent pop work of Lennon's yeah. uh, solo career. Agreed. There's the, the, the lush confessional ballad, Jealous Guy, which has been covered by a whole bunch of people, most notably Brian Ferry. There's the almost mean-spirited lyrical excoriation of McCartney and his music and the groovy mid-tempo rocker, How Do You Sleep? Uh, the Vietnam War was still going on, so the political side of Lenin couldn't help but show itself in the vicious art rock of I Don't Want to Be a Soldier and the plaintive Give Me Some Truth, which he had written a couple of years earlier. Lenin was a biting lyricist, but as we said, he could be heartwarming and tender as well. The album closer, O Yoko, is pretty obvious as to what it's about, <laughs> but, but, it's, but it's a shining example of Lenin's genius. And I, I don't normally throw the word genius around, but it's warranted here. It's his his genius for taking something that will be sentimental, trite, and banal in most songwriters' hands and make it emotional, relatable, and moving. Lennon had a gift for taking something corny and making it transcendent. And the album, Imagine, is uh, hands down the best of his pure pop commercial efforts. If you combine the critical and commercial success of both the Imagine album and the single, with the huge success of the standalone single Happy Christmas, War Is Over, one of the most enduring, timeless, classic pop standards in Lennon's repertoire, and my sure. vote, my vote for greatest Christmas song ever, you'll see that 1971 was one of the best years in Lennon's professional career. Yeah, Lennon did have a lot of great stuff. And what I meant by the uneven is that, yes, you're right. I mean. It's a four and a half star record for sure, because how can any album that has Imagine, Jealous Guy and Oyoko not, yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, just for those three alone. And then even Give Me Some Truth, which, you know, as as far as a kind of a multisyllabic, uh, you know, sort of clever wordplay and t- the way that it's structured is right there with Walrus mm-hmm. uh, in, in terms of, uh, you know, how he uh, architects uh, that song. Uh, yeah, some brilliant stuff. I still say like, you know, imagine, uh, you know, a minute 52 to a minute 55 is the greatest three seconds in the history of pop music. It's, it's my favorite three seconds. It's that transition from, uh, the end of the first chorus and the beginning of the second verse, Mm. you know, it's that little transitional boom, 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 boom. You know, I mean, that's just, that's just perfect. And so a lot of great stuff on it. It's just, um, there's just some countryish. There's there's a there's some real kind of just sort of corny. Um, I don't know what it is. It's like he has a couple of like ditties in there, some countryish stuff. Uh, George Harrison plays on a couple of songs. He's got a couple of songs where King Curtis comes in on sax. Right. Uh, you know that stuff is a little. Um, and again, it's it's clanky enough that it's kind of like uh, he's got some plastic ono band. Uh, uh, I don't know what you would call it, like backfill mm. <laughs> that he needs to get yeah. out of his system. And it sounds like the backfill. And so it's like really only two or three songs. And I, I to, that's where the unevenness comment comes from because, you know, an album with stuff that's otherwise as perfect and as heartfelt and as beautiful uh, for what it's worth. 
Uh, Yoko, as a subject, brought out the the, the best in John. He really did. All of his Yoko songs are awesome. Yep. All right, the, ne- the next one, probably the most controversial album in John yeah. Lennon's entire solo discography, Sometime in New York City from 1972. So John Lennon zigged to confessional art rock, let's call it what it is, with yep. Plastic Ono Band. He then zagged to more commercial and radio-friendly sounds with Imagine. Now he zigged back to confrontational music, this time with the most fiercely political music of his career. Yeah. An anti-Nixon, anti-war leftist. Lennon saw the year 1972 with Nixon running for re-election in the U.S. as an opportunity to double down on his political rage. And sometime in New York City, with songs credited to both him and Yoko Ono, um, sure delivers on that premise. Sure. <laughs> uh, topics such as feminism, the Attica prison revolt, the troubles in Ireland, and the seemingly wrongful incarcerations of John Sinclair and Angela Davis all get exposure uh, on this album. One that got generally panned and in some cases ravaged by critics yeah. when it came out. And I understand why. I get it. The politically charged lyrics are a little too overt and on the nose and can come across as preachy. Yes, the issues and topics that Lennon and Ono confront on the album are very much 1972 issues that rather uncompromisingly date the album as a 1972 album. If those are your reasons for not liking it, I won't push back too much. It isn't an undisputed classic like the previous two albums. But you know what? If you can stomach the political heavy-handedness, you'll find that there are some truly great songs here. Yeah. Let's start with the most controversial song on the album, one that would probably never see the light of day in today's politically correct age. Oh, God, no. Woman is the N-word of the world. Now, a person of today's day and age would read that title and say, what the fuck? Well, join the club. A lot of people yeah. in 1972 reacted the same way. <laughs> but uh, let's dig a little deeper. Uh, Lennon himself explained in various TV and radio interviews at the time. On a side note, seriously, was there anyone on the planet who gave more interviews from the mid-60s to the mid-70s than John Lennon? <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, oh, I mean, come on. Mike Douglas loved John Lennon because anytime he called up and said, hey, you want to come on my show? He's like, yeah, sure. OK, what radical are you going to bring with you this week? Because then, exactly. <laughs> then he go on there with like Stokely Carmichael or somebody one yes, time. Yes, he did. Or, yeah. Yeah. He, or, he probably, or one of those Black Panther guys. Yeah, I know. I know. Yeah. Anyway, um, so, uh, his use, he explained that his use of the N word was for the purpose of describing anyone or any group of people who have been oppressed marginalized and disenfranchised in society. Yes, this is one of the fiercest, fiercest and most in-your-face feminist anthems ever written, predating the feminist wing of the punk rock movement by several years and the riot girl movement by 20 years. Yeah. It's also a stirring, walloping brick house of a record with Phil Spector's wall of sound production giving it the heaviness and denseness that it warrants. Sure, Yoko Ono deserves credit for opening Lennon up to feminism and women's rights, but also give John credit for at least being open to those ideas. None of the other former Beatles came even close 
to embracing such ideology, not even the supposedly enlightened mystic George Harrison. Um, As as far as the racial angle in the song title, Congressman Ron Dellums, a founding member of the Congressional Black Caucus at the time, defended the song, saying that, quote, in a white male-dominated society that sees the role of women as bed partners, broom pushers, bottle washers, typists, and cooks, women are the N-words in this society. End quote. Feminists at the time embraced the song as well. The National Organization for Women gave both Lennon and Ono a positive image of women citation for the song's overtly pro-feminist sentiment. Now, was it a a hit? No. (laughs) The song peaked at number 57 in the US and didn't even chart in the UK. Oh well, wah, wah. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, yeah, I mean, this this uh, it was a flop, and it really is kind of an all over there kind of record. Um, and in a way, I mean, at this point, you know, the songs, yeah, basically, this is what happens when you're a rich Beatle and you first move to New York City and uh, with your avant gardist wife, and you yeah. immediately become friends with uh, what's his name, Jerry Rubin. Yeah. <laughs> and, and Abby Hoffman, you know, you start, yeah. yeah, you start hanging out with those guys. Gee, what do you, what do you think you're going to sing about? Um, yeah. I mean, I look at it this way. I mean, New York city is a kick-ass this, song. This, this is, this is the equivalent. Well, I'm going to get to some of the songs first, but this, this, this be, for, for younger listeners, this would be the equivalent of Taylor Swift, like shacking up with an African-American guy moving to New York and like writing BLM anthems. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I can, I, you know, I can see. I mean, this is uh, definitely a left field uh, uh, record uh, at, at this point. And everybody knew that, you know, obviously after having done Imagine and the bed ins and all that, that he had a political leaning. But, you know, this kind of like, you know, uh, radicalism, uh, you know, it's like, well, yeah, where, where the hell is this coming from? Uh, so I could see where that'd be striking. But again, you know, I think it flopped because, yeah, you can talk about some of the songs, but. It's just really, really uneven. I mean, there's there's crap in here. Um, and, you know, for every really good song, there's a really, really bad song. And I think well, that, that kind of sunk it. Yeah, there are. But I, I think there are more good ones and bad ones. Like, for example, some of the other notable songs on the album are ones that address the violence in Northern Ireland at the time. With two songs back to back. Sunday, Bloody Sunday. No, not the U2 song. <laughs> and, and Luck of the Irish. Uh, in an album full of political anger and vitriol, the R&B stomp of Sunday Bloody Sunday is probably the angriest and most vitriolic, with Lennon not just standing on the soapbox, but literally crushing the soapbox. You know, yeah. quote, you Anglo pigs and Scotties sent to colonize the North, you wave your bloody Union Jacks and you know what it's worth. How dare you hold to ransom a people proud and free Keep Ireland for the Irish. Put the English back to sea. Ouch. Ouch. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, the luck of the Irish, yeah, I know, right? Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. The luck of the Irish is, believe it or not, a little more nuanced. Um, done in a traditional Irish style folk song with all the appropriate instrumentation. It's a gorgeous piece of music with some of Lennon's most sublime vocals. Lyrically, though, the song reveals itself to be a little ambiguous. The use and seeming glorification of Irish stereotypes in the verses 
angered some critics and fans when the album was released, but repeated listens reveals, or they reveal that there was a method to Lennon's madness. He wasn't an idiot, and he was usually a very clever lyricist. I say this was Lennon's attempt at dark gallows humor, yeah. with, the Irish, with the Irish stereotypes in the verses serving the purpose of luring the listener in with hummable, melodic silliness, usually a trait associated with Paul McCartney, before hitting hard with the killer chorus. If you had the luck of the Irish, you'd wish you were English instead. <laughs> yep. um, listen, as a lifelong John Lennon apologist, even I cannot really defend Yoko Ono's, uh, shall we say, experimental vocal style. <laughs> <laughs> but not everything she did musically consisted of her screaming like a tone-deaf banshee. Yeah, uh, She had her moments when she actually, you know, sang. And some of the songs which featured her up front are some of the grooviest, most forward-thinking rock music of Lennon's post-Beatle career. Mm-hmm. The album closer, We're All Water, is hypnotic. It's a hypnotic, trancy jam of the sort that only German bands like Can were doing at the time. So back to what I said earlier. If one wants to condemn the album for being a little too of its time, well, I think that's the wrong way to think about it. I see this album as a cultural snapshot of its time, much like a photograph that captures a moment in time from a long time ago. We tend to treasure such photos. So why not treasure this album that has some truly underrated songs? And so, you know, from here, he starts to move on. So he knows that's a flop. He knows he needs to get back to more uh, more of a poppy thing. But then, you know, he rejects these guys. And then him and uh, uh, Yoko aren't uh, getting along too well. Oh, yeah. Now leads to the next album. Which I don't much care for because it's a little maudlin. Yes, it is. Mind Games from 1973. John and Yoko's way out there political activism pretty much ended after Richard Nixon was reelected as U.S. president at the end of 1972. It was around this time that Lennon allegedly cheated on Ono and the couple separated for a couple of years, these years being Lennon's quote unquote lost weekend years when he lived in Los Angeles and partied like a maniac hanging out with Harry Nilsson and Alice Cooper, drinking like Mickey Dolans and Mickey Dolans of the monkeys drinking like a fish and snorting tons of cocaine. Ironically enough, it was during this time that he reconnected with his son, Julian, but let's not dwell on the man's personal life too much. Unfortunately, Lennon ran into a bit of a songwriting slump during this time. And the result was the mostly, like you said, the mostly dismal mind games. I say mostly dismal because even at his lowest point, he was able to crank out at least one brilliant all-time classic. The title track and single from the album, Mind Games, was a decent-sized hit, going to number 18 in the U.S. Billboard chart and hitting hitting number 26 in the U.K. It was also a shining example of Lennon's lyrical gift, again, for taking lyrical sentiment that with any other songwriter would be corny and sentimental and turning it into something sublime and universal, going straight for the heartstrings and making it relatable. Only John Lennon can take a seemingly outdated 1960s-ish notion of universal love, understanding, and peace on earth and make it relevant for the 1970s. 70s and 73, yeah. The me decade. You know, musically, it's lush and opulent with a slightly psychedelic haze, proving that Lennon had actually become a pretty damn good producer on his own right. 
Yeah. In his own way. <laughs> yep. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I think that, you know, the, the thing about this record is, like you said, it's 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 not him phoning it in. It's just him being very unfocused and very maudlin and, uh, you know, almost like he, he wasn't so much that he was out of ideas. It was just sort of like he was just struggling just in, for consistency. And so, yeah. yeah, Mind Games is pretty good. But then you get a couple of other sort of, oh, woe is me and I, I love my wife songs that don't right. quite work uh the one of those that does work which i think is the best song on the record is out the blue mm. uh, which has the uh, the kind of the, the the really strange but almost somewhat strangely brilliant line like a ufo you came to me and blew away life's misery yeah yeah, yeah. so you gotta love that and then you know you've got and then he has a couple of fun songs and they're they're, they're throwaways but they're fun throwaways you know like meet meet city uh, which which ends which ends the record. Uh, bring on the Lucy free to people. Yeah, is is another is another silly one. Yes, yeah. and so you get this sort of like you just really kind of silly, uh, crunchy instrumental, and so you so you do get these kind of like fun throwaways. So it's not a complete waste, but it's just kind of like this is just like Lennon not in his right head, sure. not in his right focus, and and like really struggling. Okay, okay, so how does Lennon get out of the miasma that he was in with Mind Games? Well, he bounces back like he normally did uh, yep. with Walls and Bridges in 1974. It's fascinating to witness the commercial peaks and valleys of his solo material. Guess what? He got back on top with Walls and Bridges, a very commercially and critically successful album that produced two huge hits for him. His duet yeah. with Elton John, Whatever Gets You Through the Night, was his first number one solo hit in America. Yes, hard to believe. Imagine did not reach number one in the U.S. Right. Um, and it's a delightful fusion of disco and pop rock with all the sleazy 1970s saxophone sounds you could possibly hope for. Is it campy and silly? For sure. But so what? After years of being the oh-so-serious socio-political revolutionary, it must have been thrilling at the time then, and it's thrilling now to hear Lennon let loose and just boogie. And, yeah. uh, and e even in 2023, it's a ringing earworm of a song. The best oh, yeah. song on the album, however, is the album's second smash single, Number Nine Dream, yeah. which went to, yes, number nine on the US <laughs> Billboard hey. Singles Chart. Yeah, yep. we, we get alignment. Uh, the song is drenched in creamy, dreamy, decadent romanticism. The perfect song to have sex to after a night of coke snorting and disco dancing. Mm -hmm. uh, the sleazy funk rock of What You Got, the endearing melodrama and heartbreak that inform Nobody Loves You When You're Down and Out. The sultry sweep of steel and glass. I count this as the most underrated album in Lennon's solo discography. Chris? Oh, I, I do too. I think that uh, what, I think what this marks is because remember he solo produced this. I think this is Lennon. You know, he had had his voice as a songwriter. He had had his voice as kind of the you know message of a generation. He had had you know things that uh, that had had piqued him, but he didn't really have a studio voice, yeah, right? Or 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 a sound. And I I think that with this he had the songs, but he also had this uh, notion of uh, there's a depth to the arrangements. There is, like you said, there's a lot of, there's some fun going on here with like whatever gets you through the night, which I love, by the way. That's just, oh, yeah. You know, Lennon and Elton John doing disco. 
Uh, <laughs> and, you know, Go- Going Down on Love is a good song. Uh, he's got the track that he wrote with Harry Nelson called Old, Old Dirt Road. Which and so he's got these like really lovely ballads. He's got these sort of mid tempo. Uh, it's a it's a good pop record. Like Steel yeah. and Glass is a good song. Um, right. You know, surprise, surprise. Like you said, number nine, Dream, which is just beautiful. Uh, and you know, one thing to note, it's not necessarily trivial. Uh, Jimmy Iovine, a very young Jimmy Iovine. Yes. Uh, he's credited as the overdub engineer uh, mm. on this record. And this record obviously is is spiked to the gills with mm. overdubs, right? Uh, you know, with you know layers of horns, layers of strings, uh, you know, sort of uh, some of the vocal layerings, you know, like you know, like Lennon's voice, you know, tracked, you know, nine nine hundred times or whatever. Uh, so that's where it kind of gets its lushness. And so this is Lennon in his his, his most confident studio version and. Yeah. Some some of that spills over into what came in 1980, uh, just right. before his death. Totally. Well, the next one I won't dwell too much on. Neither will you. It's nope. called Rock and Roll from 1975. It's the last album of his Lost Weekend period. This album is just basically a covers record of John's favorite rock and roll and R&B songs from the 1950s. It's clearly him trying to reconnect to his rock and roll roots. I think it's forgettable, but if you want to hear Lennon rock out to the oldies, this may be your jam. Chris? Yeah, that, that, there's not much more to say to that, that, uh, you know, some of it works, some of it doesn't. Uh, you know, if you want to hear like the world's worst version of, besides Pat Boone's, by the way, of Ain't That a Shame. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but really, but, you know, there are some highlights, really strong version of Chuck Berry's You Can't Catch Me, uh, mm-hmm. which actually kind of shows that uh, Come Together had some influence. <laughs> Uh, from from that song, uh, yeah. r- really great weird version of "Stand by Me," you know Benny King's song, where it's basically a um, it's it's almost like a reggae version with soul guitar. It's mm. it's a it's a very strange uh, take on it. Then comes the hiatus, and <laughs> that hiatus, the the fruit of that hiatus, oddly enough, "Double Fantasy" from 1980. By 1975, John had reconciled with Yoko. And the couple managed to have a child, Lennon's second boy, Sean. This marked the beginning of his hiatus from music and his plunge into the life of of a stay-at-home dad living in New York. Now, keen listeners would have heard the lyrical hints in both the Mind Games and Walls and Bridges albums that he missed Ono and wanted to get back to her, get back with her. After all, he couldn't go on living the lifestyle he was living in Los Angeles. Oh, God, no, no. (laughs) I mean, when Lennon decided to come out of his semi-retirement in 1980, it was to be as a joint effort with Ono, 14 songs split right down the middle, seven of his and seven of hers. At the time of its release, it sold well. The public was ready for Beatle John to make a comeback, but not extraordinarily so. For the most part, it was reviewed negatively by critics because of its lyrical obsession with idealizing Lennon's and Ono's marriage and domestic bliss, while musically he was accused of being lightweight, middle-of-the-road, soft pop. To be fair, this was likely a very conscious decision on the Lennon-Ono's. Oh, sure. Uh, One famous quote Lennon gave at the time of recording was in response to a friend or a colleague accusing the then new music of being exactly what critics uh, would describe it to be. To paraphrase his response, Lennon said, yeah, 
we're taking the middle of the road right to the bank. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he was nearing 40 years old and the man wanted some hits. Well, yeah. three weeks after the album's release, something would happen that would guarantee the album's worldwide commercial success. Unfortunately, that would be the man's death by assassination in December 1980. Yeah. Uh, just like starting over, his unapologetically romantic ode to his marriage with Ono was a top 10 hit in both the US and UK upon release, but rocketed to number one in several countries around the world, including those two, after he died. The Stately and Wistful Woman was another monster hit, number one in the UK and number two in the US. But it's the brilliant Watching the Wheels that has become the most enduring track on the album. It's a song about embracing middle age and settling down after living life in the center of a whirlwind of, of celebrity, drugs, sex, rock and roll, and socio-political activism. It's a testament to the album's strength that even the Yoko Ono songs are pretty good. Oh, yeah. No longer screaming and having improved and, and having improved as an honest to God singer, she actually provides the album with some of its edgier songs. Kiss 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 is a funky new wave pop nugget that wouldn't have been out of place on a Blondie album. No, not at all. Uh, Give Me Something sounds straight up like the slits with less reggae. Uh, I'm moving on. Sounds like she's recreating her husband's sleazy rock style of the mid seventies. And every man has a woman who loves him practically predicts talking heads, Tina Weymouth's and Chris France's work in the Tom Tom club. Yep. Sure. It has its share of clunkers, but overall, overall it's wonderfully produced. It's appealing. It's insanely cat. It's an insanely catchy pop record. And remember what I said about Lennon's genius gift for transforming the banal and the corny into something resonant and profound. He pulled it off again here. And it's relentless positivity is oddly the perfect way for the man's recording career to come to an end. Chris. Oh yeah, I, I agree. I you know I would say that uh, Lennon hadn't been this charming since probably yeah. like 1964, yeah, you know, 63, 64, back when he was still doing his Roy Orbison impressions and like you know stuff like a Hard Day's Night and you know right. some of that stuff from from 64 and and even a couple of the tracks on uh, right. uh, Rubber Soul. I mean, he had a charming. Uh, to him when he was a young guy and so now he's kind of back to that with you know just right. like starting over which is almost like you know it, it has like kind of the feel of a of a kind of a, a, a skipping galloping doo-wop song from you know white you know kind of jersey shore doo-wop like frankie valley doo-wop from like 1960 right it has yeah. that kind of thing or like beautiful boy which is sentimental but you know hey it's charming it's like him uh really excited about being a father uh yeah and then you know like woman which, you know, obviously is, is very lush and, you know, very romantic. Um, and actually, you know, I mean, the guitar part on that is actually not that bad. And then, of course, again, you know, Dear Yoko, any song that he sang like explicitly and it was about Yoko. It was always good. <laughs> was always fantastic. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, there's a charm to it. But like I said, I mean, the, the real defining uh, song on this record is watching the wheels, which is just right. astonishing because basically it's a song about self-acceptance. And, you know, what made it tragic was that, you know, Mark David Chapman and his insanity and, you know, kind of lust for fame and obsession with Hol uh, Holden Caulfield, 
is like, you know, he's still like, you know, reading up on like 1970, 1971, John Lennon and thinking, oh, this guy's full of shit. Yeah. Where at the time, Lennon would probably have said, oh, yeah, 1971, John Lennon. Oh, yeah, he, he was full of shit. I know that. You know? <laughs> I <want> him. <laughs> yeah. And so, and so, so Chapman is like basically like shooting the wrong version of this guy, <laughs> you yeah. know, at this point. And that's kind of what makes it sadly ironic and, and, and tragic is that, you know, Lennon had reached a point where, yeah, he was content making, you know, pop songs about his wife and his kid and about enjoying life. And he was, he was content making pop ditties. Yeah. And this concludes our review of John Lennon, not just his solo career, but a bit of his, you know, not the songs, but his what his contributions meant to this to the Beatles. And if there are any younger listeners out there aren't that familiar with the man's solo work, go check it out. Yeah, I, go, I, yeah, go I check think, it out. I, I think he has, in my opinion, by far the best solo work of any of the solo Beatles. Yeah, I mean, I think he has like the best uh, catalog. I mean, if you go from if you go from A to Z, or if you go from beginning to end, uh, it's probably it's certainly the most interesting. So, uh, Art, just give me the uh, give, you have the final word. Uh, give me like a four sentence or just sort of a a brief, succinct uh, final appreciation of Lennon. Why, indeed, after all this sort of rambling back and forth, should we appreciate John Lennon? He was the heart and soul of the band. Okay. He was he was the heart and soul. He, like I said, we said earlier, he was the cultural and pop cultural barometer. In my mind, he was the heart and soul. He was the heart and soul. Gotcha. You know, and and uh, um, he also gave the best quotes, and he was kind of the, the, the smartest and wittiest member too. Yeah, he was pretty funny, uh, you know, for sure. But he, but he also, yeah, like you said, he, he was the heart and soul of the Beatles, but he also was a guy who was vulnerable enough that he basically grew up in, in over the course of these seven records. We hear him growing up. Right. We do. We do. It, it, take, it took him a while to grow up a bit, but he finally, he did eventually. You yeah. Know? And so that's the part that I think I would appreciate more with Lennon is that, mm-hmm. yes, was he a narcissist that wanted to live his life out in public? Sure. But it was a fascinating life and you did see that growth. Yeah. Uh, and with that, uh, we've come to the end of another uh, journey here on the, uh, in the in the life of the Curmudgeon Rockport. It is very, very nice to be back here live and in person for both of us. Uh, and as we always say, uh, we have our Facebook Curmudgeonly Community. Uh, which is pretty vibrant, and there's been some pretty funny posting going on there lately. So uh, facebook.com slash uh, curmudgeon uh, curmudgeon rock. Uh, And so uh, it's invite only, but chances are, unless you're not allowed uh, within 500 feet of a school, we'll let you in. Uh, We also, uh, if you have any sort of opinions, if you think we've been full of crap on anything, uh, hit us up uh, via uh, Gmail at uh, curmudgeonrock.gmail.com. And then we're also on Twitter. Uh, you know, Elon Musk might be in the middle of making it a weird-ass place, but we're still there, and uh, we're pretty actively uh, posting on there. So uh, t- check us out at Curmudgeon Pod is our handle uh, there, and uh, you know you can find links to our new uh, uh, new uh, uh, episodes there, and the occasional uh, nasty takedown of John Rich. 